Welcome back to the 10 Blocks Podcast. This is Brian Anderson, the editor of City Journal. Joining me on the show today is Kay Heimowitz. Kay's the William E. Simon Fellow at the Manhattan Institute and a longtime contributing editor at the magazine. Her latest piece in City Journal is called Alone, The Decline of the Family Has Unleashed an Epidemic of Loneliness. That's the subtitle. It's one of the great pieces she's ever written in City Journal, and I encourage you to find it on our website. Lastly, just one more announcement. We created a new email address for the show, so if listeners want to get in touch and drop a comment or share an idea, you can now email us at podcast at city-journal.org. That's podcast at city-journal.org. That's it for the introduction. We'll take a quick break, and we'll be back with Kay Heimowitz. Hello again, everyone. This is Brian Anderson, the editor of City Journal, and joining us in the studio now is Kay Heimowitz. She's a contributing editor at City Journal and a fellow at the Manhattan Institute. You can follow her on Twitter, at Kay Heimowitz, and she's the author of many books, most recently The New Brooklyn, What It Takes to Bring a City Back, which came out in 2017, and prior to that, Manning Up, How the Rise of Women Has Turned Men into Boys, which came out in 2011. We're here today, though, to talk about her latest piece in City Journal called Alone. Kay, thanks very much for joining us. Oh, I'm happy to be here, Brian. So let's just start off. What made you want to write about the topic of loneliness? And what is the state of loneliness in America? Well, uh, let me start by saying I didn't actually set out to write about loneliness. I knew it was a great topic, but I wasn't exactly sure how to approach it. Uh, And I stumbled across an article that inspired me uh, by two social scientists. I think they're demographers. Uh, And uh, they described something called the rise of kinlessness, that is, uh, a rise in the number of people who have no kin, older people who have no kin. And um, it was very eye-opening, and I began to see that Uh, the uh, breakdown of the family that I've been studying for maybe 15 years now and uh, that I had mostly talked about in relation to its impact on children was also having quite an impact on older people, particularly aging adults, uh, and that uh, some of the the, uh, despair that we were hearing about, the deaths of despair, the opioid crisis, uh, and so on and so forth, are uh, actually disproportionately made up of divorce and single, well, of, of men in particular. Uh, so I realized that we're looking at something big here uh, in terms of the family breakdown and its, its ultimate impact, uh, something that I hadn't, hadn't quite foreseen or, or thought of. It's probably worth rehearsing some of the numbers in terms of this uh, breakdown in family. Uh, Divorce rates for married couples, I think, are probably double what they were back in the 50s. They are indeed. Um, But in in some ways, the picture is even darker, that that you have uh, 40% of kids, I think, are born to unmarried mothers now. That's up from 5% in 1960. 
And strikingly, the rate of women uh, who don't give birth at all, I think, has uh, doubled or, or yes. is much higher. Yes. And you could go on and on in this, right. in this vein. Right. Um, this is, is obviously the core of your argument. It's having a big impact on loneliness mm-hmm. and, and kinlessness and this whole phenomenon. So say a bit more about that and, you know, what do you, th- what do you right. think is driving it? Well, I think that uh, a lot of what's happening is um, due to a, a change in our understanding of what the family is, what its purpose is. Um, I talk a lot in the article about uh, the beginnings of what I see as the unraveling of the family, uh, or the, or the, the uh, uh, shall we say, a kind of assault on on the traditional family. I, I want to clarify that uh, as we go on. Um, I see the beginnings of it in uh, something that demographers call the second demographic transition. Um, we sometimes talk about, the in, in ordinary parlance, we talk about the 60s um, or the sexual revolution. But those were actually a, an American reflection of uh, something that, that, as I said, demographers have been studying. The second demographic uh, transition, they believe, is partly the result of affluence, uh, as he, as the societies in the West, in particular, but also uh, uh, over time, Japan uh, and others, um, as they got richer, families were not as essential to mere survival uh, as they had once been. Now, this was um, intensified. This fact by the introduction of the birth control pill, obviously, because you could control uh, uh, sexual reproduction um, without worrying about um, whether you were married or not. Uh, and what the uh, theory is is that this would introduce a, a different set of values, um, anti-authoritarian um, and a little bit anti-tradition, individualistic, um, as people began to see they could be freer uh, to find other ways of living than to depend entirely on family or to depend mostly, to depend mostly on their families. Um, and in fact, uh, following the second demographic transition, um, there was a huge uh, increase, as you, just, as you just pointed out in your numbers, in the uh, percentage of divorces, uh, the percentage of non-marital births, and this, by the way, is not just true in the United States, but in other developed countries, not all of them, but, but many, uh, and um, also of uh, fatherlessness. Um, so um, I think that these ideas that emerged uh, with affluence and the uh, second demographic transition uh, made it possible for people to think very differently about how they were going to live. And I should say now, because I'll be talking about the downsides of, of this, uh, uh, the, the, what followed from the semi- second demographic transition, but uh, it did really give people a lot of freedom. And there's no question that there were many people f- uh, relieved from very miserable and even violent marriages. 
uh, as a result of the second demographic transition. Uh, there were um, many different ways to think about living. People, it was possible to um, not be married if you really didn't want to, uh, which I think has worked nicely for some individuals. And of course, it opened up the door to um, gay marriage for, you know, for much more freedom for gay, gay youth and lesbians. So there is a tremendous upside, and I don't want to discount that. Uh, but what I try to do in this article is show that there's some real downsides that we haven't quite understood. Well, what are some of those downsides? Why, why is it a problem for society that people are increasingly alone? You know, and and what what are some of the manifestations of that that are right, negative? Right. So one of the things that I try to do in the article is to remind people that kinship, um, those close family relations, is blood and and marital relations, um, have been kind of the linchpin of societies since we came out of the caves. I mean, it is absolutely fundamental to every society, the relationship between kin. And what it does is um, those relationships define certain kinds of obligations. Uh, we tend to be more protective of kin uh, and to know, understand our roles better in, when, uh, in relation to kin. Everything else, all of our other relationships may be very important to us, but we're making those up pretty much as we go along. Um, and uh, the kinship, as we've sort of gotten rid of that basic uh, building block or, or we've sort of undermined it through the, through the uh, divorce revolution, the uh, uh, sexual revolution, the second demographic uh, transition, um, we've undermined the way kin work. So one point I make is that there's been a huge rise in cohabitation, and particularly among less educated uh, and lower income people, cohabitation has become a kind of substitute for marriage. Uh, and um, the hope among uh, uh, social scientists, uh, sociologists, and economists was always that gradually people would realize that you could cohabit, but you really ought to stay together. That it would be a kind of that it would be a kind of marriage or marriage light. Uh, but in fact, that's not what's happened. What's happened is that co the norm of cohabitation is much more transitory, impermanent, fragile, and unpredictable. I, and those uh, couples who are cohabiting and do not go on to marry uh, tend to break up much, much more quickly. This is even true when they have children? Uh, oh, yes, definitely. So the children of cohabiting couples are having a very, very different upbringing than the children of married couples. Now, it's true, we do have higher rates of divorce than we used to. Um, although it's stabilized, and one of the reasons it's stabilized is that so many people are not getting married anymore. They are cohabiting. So uh, 
the upshot is that there are an awful lot of children, as I've pointed out many times before, growing up in very unstable environments. But then an awful lot of parents, particularly men, who are losing direct contact with their kids. Now, most men, uh, after a divorce or after a child out of marriage, tr you know, try to maintain some contact. But that tends to, it's not always true, that tends to uh, fade out over time. Remember, a lot of the people who are cohabiting, having children uh, as they're cohabiting are young. Uh, and understandably, if that relationship doesn't work out, they go on and seek out another one. Well, what often happens is that there is a new family that develops out of that second union and possibly even a third or fourth. So um, the child is faced with a, uh, and, and uh, fathers too, are faced with this rolling cast of people, uh, none of whom have quite the uh, connection of the kin, of the old-fashioned kin relationships, uh, so that those men are frequently on their own uh, as they get older. Uh, and um, uh, if I could just uh, add a little personal observation here that some people might not agree with, um, men just don't make homes or, you know, and, mm -hmm. uh, 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 make, even make friends quite the way that women do. And we do have some data on this as well. Looking around the world, um, and you noted this earlier, we know that the U U.S. isn't the only country facing problems of loneliness. One of the most striking uh, examples in your story is Japan, which has seen just an incredible rise in what they call lonely deaths. Um, maybe you could describe uh, a little bit the situation there and uh, how Japan is, is dealing with it. Japan is an interesting contrast to the United States in some ways and other Western countries because uh, uh, non-marital childbearing, uh, single motherhood is relatively rare, unlike here. Uh, and uh, also, divorce is relatively rare. It's getting, it's getting more common. Um, what's happening instead is that an awful lot of people are not having children, so their, for infer their fertility rates are very, very low. Uh, people, well, well below replacement. Rate, well right? below mm -hmm. replacement. Our, ours are low, but this is lower. Um, and uh, the you know I, I read one uh, social Japanese social scientist who said that the basic concept of the family in Japan is dead. Uh, so there are an awful lot of elderly people on their own, living alone, um, and by the way, dependent on the state to support them because uh, uh, they don't have any family to speak of, uh, or their family has moved away or is extremely busy with work. We know that the Japanese are uh, uh, workaholics. Um, but uh, the, they started to um, see this rise in lonely deaths, which uh, we're beginning to see here too, uh, and it became such a phenomenon in Japan that the newspapers started to cover, local newspapers would start to cover these stories that were happening very frequently. Um, and in addition, this was the part that kind of uh, caused me to sit up and wonder, they, uh, there are businesses now, they're cleanup companies, 
to take care of apartments after a lonely death because what what happens uh, is that when somebody dies and they're alone and nobody's really watching out for them, uh, they often die in their apartment. Nobody knows they're dead. Nobody finds them until uh, the telltale smell of uh, a decaying body. And um, it makes a huge mess for um, building owners or landlords. Um, and so they've started these companies, these cleanup companies. Uh, and I believe I, I, the, I, I mentioned the name of one of them, which I, <laughs> it's kind of grim. It's called Next. Yeah. So, uh, but these companies, there are a fair number of them, uh, and they've become um, a uh, essential part, part central of part of Japanese yeah, life. It's, it's a it's a very very grim um, reality. Yeah, um, I've been reading a book by Cal Newport called Digital Minimalism, and it's an argument against being immersed in social media and other forms of technologically driven distraction. He says we need to set more time for our sanity's sake to be alone, uh, or at least off of the internet and this constant bombardment of, of connection with other people. In other words, he's saying technology is making us constantly exposed to other people in ways that can harm us, at least if it goes too far. How does social media and the constant judgment that people sometimes feel themselves under through social media if they're participating in it how does that intersect with the argument that you're making? Well, uh, social media, um, I'm thinking of Facebook in particular, was supposed to bring us all together, right? Um, it was the social network. We were going to create all these new social networks. And, you know, I think some people have been able to use it that way uh, or to, to make contact with old high school friends or whatever. But uh, it has also added to a sense of anxiety uh, as people post pictures of their happy family occasions. Um, it can look like things are just so uh, wonderful and peachy keen for everybody else while you're feeling down in the dumps. Uh, what is that expression? FOMO, fear of missing out. Um, you're missing parties that you might have been invited to. You're, uh, you know, everybody, people are taking wonderful trips trips that you, you know, don't have anybody to travel with or whatever. So I think it can exacerbate loneliness in that way because you're constantly comparing yourself uh, to uh, other people at their peak moments because that's when people post, post their Instagram pictures. Or post on Facebook. So I, yes. Right. And there is something about, uh, aside from the FOMO, uh, aside from that, the kinds of connections you make through social media don't seem to be the same as those you make in real life. Um, I haven't seen wonderful research on this yet, but it seems to me an area ripe for exploration. Um, we, uh, it, it seems so clear somehow that you can be online um, communicating, even playing games with people. Uh, uh, from all over the world and, and seemingly making new friends and still feel a, a quite lonely and be lonely because you turn off the computer or um, uh, walk into another room and you're right. alone. Yes. A lot's been written, especially since the election of Donald Trump, about the state of Rust Belt communities, um, the opioid crisis, which you, you mentioned earlier, 
Um, how much, in your view, is uh, the family breakdown you're describing uh, having an impact on those communities? And uh, is, it, is it part of what's causing the problem, or is it a outgrowth of the breakdown in those communities? Well, economic breakdown. Yeah, um, there's no question that family breakdown ex exacerbates uh, and intensifies the loss of uh, the these communities, the or rather um, the jobs, the factories that have left. Uh, if you if you lose your job, and you lose your wife or husband because to opioids or or just they've just left, um, then you've got real trouble. Uh, you don't have anybody to support you through difficult times. I, one of the things I argue in that piece is that the breakdown of the family has not affected educated and well-off people anywhere near to the extent that it has, uh, well, blacks and also the, now the white working class. That came a little bit later. Um, and... I think that what we underestimated, we who lived through the second demographic transition and played a role in uh, pushing it, actually, because I, I was at college in the 1960s when a lot of these ideas were being tested out and, and promulgated. If the uh, educated classes, then uh, more well-to-do classes, were able to figure out a way to maintain their families, uh, what they didn't anticipate, or what none of us anticipated, was that it would be much harder for people who were living more on the edge, who had evictions to worry about, mm -hmm. or layoffs, or, or uh, a factory closing. Um, you need, in those cases, a culture that really supports, a, a cultural environment that really supports the idea of the family, and of kinship as people that, uh, and of kin, as people that are there for you in hard times. Uh, Providing and, uh, a network and of support. And that's words. right. That's right. And the, what, uh, in, in those communities, instead, we saw a more and more of a collapse of the family. Now, was it possible that, uh, uh, we could have, in a different cultural environment, it could have been different. Maybe. Maybe. It's very hard to disentangle right. uh, the yes. cause and Causal effect patterns. here. But there's a question that they go hand in, the, the, you know, the loss of the working class or the manufacturing uh, job uh, jobs has played a big, uh, has, has uh, definitely been related to the breakdown of the family in the in the working class. Now, I should mention that one of the things that's happened uh, as a result, of, well, related again to the breakdown of the family in those communities, is this opioid crisis. Opioids, as you may know, is now killing more people than uh, traffic accidents, than car accidents. Um, and I was amazed to see uh, in um, some in a recent study that uh, the victims or the uh, the people who die from uh, of opioid death uh, are much more likely to be single, unmarried, or divorced men, um, and uh, that. 
speaks of exactly what I've been trying to describe. I think that women are better at creating their own social networks. Um, this was something that the uh, sociologist Eric Kleinenberg, who wrote a book called Going Solo about people living alone, it's something he noticed as he started to interview people uh, who were living alone. And even among the elderly, women were more likely to want to live alone. They didn't want to remarry if they were widowed or, or uh, divorced. Uh, but who uh, kept fairly rich lives that were still able to, they went to, they volunteered, they um, had friend, networks of friends that they could go out with, uh, and that sort of thing. So, and if there were children, they were closer to the kids than, the, than a single father. So they had all those supports. Men seemed to suffer much more loneliness. Uh, than women, um, and um, uh, you know we can debate from here to eternity <laughs> why that is, but there it is. Well, to um, ask a final question, and it's how you conclude your piece. Uh, what might be necessary to start reknitting the social fabric in a way that uh, uh, might address this this problem? You know, you. you you mentioned Tom Wolfe's idea of a great relearning. Uh, say a little bit about that. Yeah. Um, well, first I should say that there are a lot of government programs for seniors, mm -hmm. uh, a lot of uh, on the federal level, on the city and, and local level. Uh, there are all kinds of ways that civil society jumps in. Seniors helping seniors is one group. Meals on Wheels, place, uh, organizations like that. They're absolutely essential and beneficial, and I don't want to knock them at all. But they are, don't begin to address the loss uh, that a lot of people are feeling or the loneliness. So um, one of the things that struck me um, in thinking about all this was how much joy and pleasure so many of my friends, and I should say, you know, I'm, I'm 70 years old, so many of my friends now with grandchildren uh, would mostly worried when their kids were growing up about their careers. You know, mm -hmm. they, they would focus so much on their education, uh, starting from early on. I mean, we were the beginning of helicopter parents, not quite as bad as today, but there, it, it did begin quite a while ago. Um, but never talking about this other, what I consider to be the other big goal in life, to find a... Um, spouse, a, a kind and reliable and giving spouse who will make a good mother or father for your children because most people are going to want children uh, and societies depend on them right. wanting children. Um, those parents didn't talk to their kids about these things. And yet, here I was going to weddings uh, and watching these grandchildren being bored. And the parents were going nuts. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I thought, well, why, why wouldn't they ever talk about, you know, the, the, the joy uh, of, of this um, stage of life and of the connection that we now have with our children? This is one lovely thing of the 
I, that has followed the second demographic transition is I think there's a much, much less of a generation gap between me and my kids than there was between my kids, between me and my, my own parents. Yes, I because, think that's, yeah. that's true. So, and there's a kind of companionship and friendship that uh, we, I didn't see in, in my day so much. We have that, and it's a source of great comfort and, and pleasure, I think, for most of the people that uh, are, are able to experience it. So I, I note all that because I, I want readers to realize that this is something we don't talk about to our kids very much. And so we have another generation who's growing up who have never heard those words right. or any yeah. those concepts from, from their parents or from anybody. Well, maybe it's uh, time for a different kind of conversation. Yes. Um, in any case, uh, don't forget to check out uh, Kay's brilliant essay in City Journal. It's called Alone. It's in our latest issue. You can find it on our website, and we will link to it in the description. You can follow Kay on Twitter, at Kay Heimowitz. You can also find City Journal on Twitter, at City Journal, and on Instagram, at City Journal underscore MI. And always, if you like what you've heard on the podcast, give us a nice rating on iTunes. Thanks for listening, and thanks, Kay Heimowitz, for joining us. Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.